grab your Bibles, book form, app form, however you have it, grab it. Uh, we're in the book of Romans again today, chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12. So please turn there, um, however that looks for you. Grab your Bible and turn there. And we are continuing on in part 5 of our series through the book of Romans. Part 5 we've called The Practice. So we've been getting really, really practical over the last several weeks. Um, again, I do want to say for those of you who are coming in here, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't claim Jesus as Lord. You are in the right place. Uh, so great to have you. We want to get you plugged in here. One note on this text today for you. See, this text was written uh, specifically to first century Christians in a place called Rome. It was written to the church, which means that today this message is going to be primarily to Christians. So you're in the right place. Again, sit back, relax. We just want you to listen in on this conversation. Uh, no strings attached, no pressure. So let me read our text for us. Romans 14, 1 to 12. I'll pray and then we'll get into it. Um, please have a look at your text. All right, Paul writes this. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, God, that in Jesus, your ears are open to us, that we can speak and you hear. Thank you. God, thank you that it's not only true that you hear our voice, but that we can hear your voice, God. And by the power of your spirit, I just, I ask God, I come before you and I ask boldly that you will speak to us today and that you'll change us in light of what we hear. Lord, we know that your words to us are more valuable, more important than bread, more important than food. So, Lord, would you speak? Would you nourish us? Would you strengthen us? I pray, God, that we would be changed in light of what you do in us this morning, the work that only you can do. I pray that I wouldn't be a distraction, God, that, that the sin in my life wouldn't be a distraction. And Lord, that distraction of all kinds and all shapes would be just, just removed from this place, God, that we would for the next few moments be able to together just focus on your word and, and hear from you. So Lord, in your name, we pray these things. Amen. All right, now over the last few weeks, if you've been around Westside, you know that we've been getting really, really practical. Ever since Romans chapter 12, verse 1, um, where Paul made a big transition, we've been looking at the day-in, day-out stuff of life, right? Romans 12, 1, what do we see? Well, we saw that Paul said, therefore, by the mercies of God, right? Meaning, everything that's about to follow, all the practical exhortations and encouragement, Paul says, everything I'm going to tell you about the sleeping, eating, working, playing stuff of life, all of it is intricately tied to and flows directly from everything we've seen so far. So what is it? What have we seen so far? What was Romans 1 to 11 all about? Well, Romans 1 to 11 was all about the gospel Right, the gospel of Jesus as the culmination to this nation called Israel's story. It was all about how the gospel changes everything about us and our lives. It was all about how the, the fact that the only division that exists between people from a gospel perspective 
is those who try to find their way back to God and find salvation through their own works and those who trust in Jesus' works instead. Right? Those who are working hard themselves, living a good life on their own, and those who are trusting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So ever since the therefore in chapter 12, we've been being encouraged to actually live in light of this. Right? We've, been sh- we've been shown what a disciple of Jesus actually looks like, how the gospel actually is meant to change our lives, which leads us to today. And the text we have in front of us today, Romans 14, 1 to 12. See, this is a really interesting text. It's interesting because at first, when you read it, it seems like the point is really obvious. Right? It seems like Paul is really concerned about a couple things, a couple things that he explicitly mentions. Let me show them to you. Uh, in verse 2, have a look at it. He says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then in verse 5, he says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Paul seems really concerned about diets and days here. That's what's going on, diets and days. He seems very concerned about the fact that people who practice different diets and people who hold different traditions aren't really getting along. Right? They're quarreling with each other. He seems really concerned that the vegetarians in the church, whom he labels as weak, it's his word, It's not our word. It's his word. He says they're weak. The God's word says they're weak. (laughs) He seems to be saying, make sure to accept them. Right? Well, he's saying, man, I know they always have kale stuck in their teeth. And you can just feel that general self-righteousness just flowing from them every time you bite into your burger. But accept them. (laughs) Welcome them. Anyway, that's kind of what he's saying. Not really. (laughs) But he's saying, don't let those things be a barrier to you. To which I think the vast majority of us, everyone in here, at least most of us, would respond, great. Yes, Paul, we're with you. We agree. I mean, it would be very, very sad for Christians to be separated by such trivial matters. We're with you, Paul. We got that one. Let's move on. But there's a problem. See, the problem is that Paul actually slows down here. Paul actually spills four times more ink on this one topic than on any others in these chapters. He's very concerned about this. See, there's more going on here than simply discussion about diet and tradition. So the question for us is, what's the big deal? Right? What's the issue? What's going on? Paul, what are you getting at? Why are you camping here? So in order for us to understand that, we need to do a little bit of digging. Now, sometimes it helps to start with what we know the issue is not. Okay, so what the issue is not. I, I read several commentators, well not several, I read a couple of commentators this, this past couple of days as I was looking at this text, who said that, you know, the issue, the, the deeper issue happening here is really that we've got Christians, particularly of Jewish descent, who have kind of a Jesus plus mentality. Okay, so Christians, uh, born as Jews, they've come to Jesus, and now they, they still want to shore up God's grace in their life with their own works, right? So Jesus plus my own works equals my justification. So they're saying, yeah, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, but I obviously still need to keep parts of the law in order for God to accept me as righteous. Now, here's why I don't think That's the issue we have in front of us this morning. Two reasons. First, verse 6. Have a look at it. Verse 6 tells us that all the people Paul has in view here, whether they eat meat or not, keep certain days and traditions or not, are all honoring the Lord. That's what he says. Now, Paul wouldn't say that they were all honoring the Lord if what we had here was a discussion on people who were trying to mingle law with grace. I mean, Paul's very very passionate on that one particular point. He's made a big deal about that up till now. If that were what he's saying, this is a big departure from everything we've read so far in the letter. The second reason I don't think we're seeing people here who are denying the gospel is that in Paul's other writings, the book of Galatians, for example, when that exact issue came up of people starting with grace and then reverting to the law, when that issue came up, Paul didn't instruct the people to just welcome each other and not to quarrel. He said in Galatians 3.1, Oh foolish Galatians. Literally, you can read there, stupid Galatians. Who has bewitched you? 
Who has deceived you? See, when, when Paul came across this issue, it wasn't peace. It wasn't a peace pipe that he came with. It was a sledgehammer. This was an important one. It was a big deal to him. He wasn't about to let people believe the lie that it was all right to mix elements of law with elements of grace when it came to their justification. So something's different, something different is happening here, but what is it? What's the issue? Well, I'd like to ask you to try to insert yourself. We'll try to insert ourselves into the context a little bit, as much as we can. Imagine you, okay, you were born in the first century as a Jew. That's your context, your pure blood. Your parents are both Jewish. You're born Middle East, first century. There you are. Okay, you grow up learning all about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the stuff of your dreams. You wake up, you're taught to recite the Shema. You go to sleep, same thing, and all through the day. You, all through the day, you're told how to, how to eat in ways that please God, how to observe traditions that pleases God. And hopefully, I mean, the goal of that is that as you're learning to keep the law, you're growing to love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now imagine this. Now imagine you, as that first century Jew, now you come to Jesus. You find out that Jesus is actually the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Same guy. That he's the son of God himself. I mean, a huge weight is lifted off your shoulders as you find out that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose for you because you couldn't keep the law perfectly, which you would have already discovered on your own. So he alleviates all that pressure, all that stress. You come to him by grace alone, through faith alone. You love him. You're a new creation. You're a disciple of Jesus. And your love for him is just growing. So how do you respond to that? That's the question. How do you respond? Well, you'd want to do everything in your power to live in ways that please him. Right? So if you grew up learning that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you grew up learning that that God really loves his people to eat a certain way. You grew up learning that God really loves his people to observe certain days and traditions. I mean, wouldn't you want to lean into those things even more? Wouldn't you want to make those things even more part of your life? Not for your justification, but because you want to respond to his grace on your life. What I want for us here is I just want us to feel the struggle. The struggle that there would have been between the, the Gentile Christians and those of Jewish descent also coming to Jesus. See, they would have both agreed, both Jew and Gentile, we've come to Jesus, now we need to live lives that are pure. Both agreed. The problem is that the Jewish laws, the, the days and the diets of, of, of keeping themselves pure would have had no impact on the Gentiles whatsoever. The Gentiles would have felt no inclination to keep those things, while for the Jews, they would have felt extremely convicted that this is how they have to live, that to disregard those things would be sin. See, the issue is deeper than diets and, to, and days. It's deeper than mere tradition. This is flowing straight out of last week. Remember last week? Owe no one anything except to love each other, love one another. It's the law of love. This is exactly what we're seeing here today. Paul is, Paul is fighting for this local church to love each other and how they handle their freedom. The freedom that they've been given in Jesus. He's saying that some of you have clear consciences in matters where your brothers and sisters who also love Jesus feel very restricted. He's saying because of God's grace on our lives, we have an obligation to walk lovingly with each other, to welcome each other, and not to quarrel over secondary matters of conscience but to let the gospel of God's love define our interactions instead. So it's into that context, that issue that Paul writes, Romans 14 verse 1, and says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinion. See, Paul's camping here because he wants this church to love each other well in light of the freedom they've been given in Christ. So that's the issue. Now, in the next few minutes... What I want to do for us is I want us to see how this is relevant to us today. I mean, what does this mean for us in our context? I, I, there's a good chance this morning that you are sitting beside or at least in close proximity to a vegetarian. Don't look now. They're around. They're here. I know that they're here. <clears throat> you can smell them. My hunch, though, is that you don't really care. It's not really a big deal. 
right? You're, you're, you don't feel this kind of angst rising up in you that, man, I need to go, I need to argue with them because it's ridiculous to be a vegetarian. You don't feel that kind of angst. At least I hope you don't. Those kind of people are really annoying. Um, so let's not be those. But, but I know that that's not really the issue for us. So how does this relate to us then? I want to see three things. Okay, three things we're going to look at. If you're taking notes, here's the three. What, I want us to understand what this call to love looks like in the context of the freedom that God's given us. So three points. First, I want us to see the gift of freedom that we're given in Jesus. The gift of freedom. Second, I want, to see, I want us to see the problem of freedom. And lastly, I want to close with a purpose greater than our freedom. Okay, so the gift of freedom. Let's start there. Drop down in Romans 14, verse 3. I'm going to read a couple verses for you. Uh, it always is really encouraging to me when I see you looking down at the Bible and reading along. So please do that or at least fake it. Just look at your knees or something. Romans 14, I'll read verses 3 and then verses 5. So Paul writes in verse 3, he says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why not, Paul? For, because God has welcomed him. And then verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. One thing that I want us to see here. I want us to notice the incredible freedom gifted to the people of God. I mean, this is really unbelievable, what we're being told here. See, we're being told that whether you eat a certain way or don't, whether you observe certain traditions or don't, God has welcomed all who are his regardless. Regardless. In other words, if God's word doesn't explicitly or implicitly call something sin, or if God's word doesn't explicitly or implicitly command us to do something, you're free. You're free to make up your own mind about it. Right, to, to, to make up your own mind about that thing. Now, there are a lot of aspects of our lives that the Bible doesn't speak to, explicitly or implicitly. A lot of, lot of areas where we have freedom. In fact, it seems like most of life at times is that way. So the question is, what's supposed to guide us? How are we supposed to make our choices? And this is where it gets even more amazing. Verse 5 tells us that the grid we're supposed to look through is our God-given, awakened, empowered by the spirit conscience. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. What this means is that whenever the Bible is silent on an issue, we are given a redemptive version of follow your heart. Right? Fairy tale lovers rejoice. Right? This is Pocahontas's dream. Follow your heart. And follow your heart. We like this. This is good news. We like being told to follow our heart. We're good at that. I'm good at that. I'm going to follow my heart to Hawaii. I, I, I had to sell my Harley a couple years ago. I'm going to follow my heart and buy another one, right? I'm going to be fully convinced in my own mind. I'm good at doing that. And then I'm going to follow my heart. This is good news for us. We like this kind of thing, but it leads to another question. See, the question I asked over the last couple days was, do we have any issues, us, me and you, all of us together, do we have any issues in the church today where one person feels freedom in a matter of conscience, something the Bible's silent on, a secondary issue? One person feels freedom while another one feels restricted and convicted and that for them it would actually be sin. Do we have any issues like that? You know, I grew up uh, here in Vancouver and I grew up going to a little church called Pilgrim Baptist. It's uh, on Inverness and 45, if you're ever driving by there. Uh, it's a little black and white building. I'm super nostalgic. I'm a really sentimental person. So I'll regularly, when we're in the area, just drag my wife by that and be like, you know, I remember doing this there. I remember doing this there. I remember doing this. It's a big deal for me. My old Manopa, they've been going there for over 60 years. My dad grew up going there. We went there as kids. Back then, very German. Very, I mean, I went, every day I went to church, I mean, every Sunday when I went to church, it was suit and tie, right? The whole, the whole thing, very proper, very German. Uh, and so one of the things that that meant was that there were a lot of things we did at home that we weren't allowed to talk about in church. Right? For example, our family, I, I feel bad even confessing this, but our family, we went to movies. 
not only that, our family, we watch TV. Even shows which featured men and women in really tight pants who had superpowers. It was like magic, the way that they could move and fly and all that kind of thing. We also had several decks of playing cards in our house that we would break out when friends came over and that kind of thing. We listened to music with drums and electric guitars, all that stuff. Not only that, this is the worst of it all. My, my sister, my brother was too young. My sister and I, my older sister, we would actually on Halloween, we'd get dressed up and we would go into the neighborhood and we would take a pillowcase and fill it with sugar. I want you to please hear me. We were convinced, fully convinced in our own minds and we were following our hearts door to door. We, we were living on the edge and we recognized that. This was a, it was a wild childhood for us. Okay, but as I was thinking about these things, these matters of conscience, I realized I don't think this really translates. Like, I don't think that these are really big issues for most of us in this room today. A lot of us maybe remember a time or have been in places where those things would have been a big deal. Um, but, but what are some matters of conscience, conscience for us today? Well, there's lots. There's lots. How about shopping? We're going to get practical, okay? How about shopping? So one Christian feels really free in how they can spend their money. While another feels that for them to spend their money in that same way would be sin. Okay, so we have uh, people roll up. We have a guy roll up to Westside in a Beamer. All right, we have, a, we have a certain famous preacher who has stated publicly, anyone who buys a BMW is not a heavenly minded person. What do we do with that? It's a matter of conscience. How about entertainment and TV? Now, some guys are really free when it comes to sports. Right? I mean, they watch hockey and they watch football and they watch basketball all the way through the season. And because nothing else is on at that particular time of the year, they watch baseball, right? <laughs> it's depraved, but they watch it. And they feel totally content with that. They're able to sit down on their couch and just spend the hours that way. They feel great about it. While another guy, if he were to sit next to them, might feel, might feel really convicted. Man, I cannot spend my hours this way. It's, it's just not okay for me. Now, if I really wanted to open up a can of worms, which I don't, and I kind of also do, but if I did want to, I would mention yoga. Yeah, yoga is a big one especially in our city, right? But what's the deal with yoga? I mean, I had a girl email me this week from my side. She said, okay, man, here's the thing. Uh, I've been doing yoga. It's been a great part of my life. I thought it would fit really good into my schedule, my rhythm. I've really been enjoying it. But I've got Christian friends who are telling me now that I'm not supposed to do yoga as a Christian. I need to stop doing it right now. So what's the answer? What's the answer? I mean, one person they walk into a yoga class or room or whatever, and they strike a pose, and they cannot help but think about how that form has at one point in time been used in the worship of pagan false gods. They're totally convicted about it. For them, it's sin. While for another person, they go to the same class, and for them, it's a great workout. I mean, they're sweating buckets, they're stretching, they're working hard, right? And, and for them, it's a great part. It's a completely different kind of work than they do anywhere else. You know, I, I think what we have here is a situation where Paul's words in Romans 14 verse 5 are helpful. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And verse 3, let not the one who does yoga despise the one who abstains from yoga. And let not the one who abstains from yoga pass judgment on the one who does yoga, for God has welcomed him. Now one caveat in regards to this, uh, this subject particularly, yoga, is this. It is a complex issue. Um, there are some different kind of strings being pulled through this subject. Um, it's not quite as simple as just a matter of conscience, because here's the thing. There are classes of yoga in our city where it's just a workout. It's physical, it's just a workout, you're sweating, you're working hard, all that stuff. But there are many others. In fact, I know some yoga instructors and, and kind of the circles they run in. There are many others in our city uh, where it's overtly spiritual. Where this is an overt, they're making overt spiritual connections. 
Now, I think what we have here is a situation like in Corinth when Paul instructs the Christians in Corinth. He says, you know, you can eat the food which is offered to idols, I'm paraphrasing, right? Because it's just food and those idols aren't even real. However, the Christians in Corinth were, were not permitted, were not permitted to, uh, to take part in the offering. Why? Well, because as the people around them who don't know Jesus observe them entering into these acts of what, what for them are acts of worship, they get conf- very confused and, you, and you, you damage people's ability to come to Jesus. So there are, extra, there are extra layers here, especially in that topic. But there's other, other examples of matter of conscience as well. Social media. I'll, t- let me, I'll let you into a little of the darkness of my own heart. Uh, not really, but kind of. Uh, Twitter. Okay, I, I, I rarely, I rarely feel that I can tweet with a clear conscience. I, I, there's often times when I, write, when I write something, it usually has to do with something about, you know, the gospel or faith or something. You know, I think it's brilliant. I think it's a brilliant thought. Everyone needs to hear it. It might even be helpful. And so I write it. I get ready to send it. And then I just feel this check in my spirit. Like, what is this all about? What's going on here? Am I using this and the gospel as a means of self-promotion? And so nine times out of 10, you know what I have to do? I have to delete it. I delete it, it goes in the trash, whatever. But then here's the problem. I usually end up scrolling through my newsfeed anyway, because I'm there. So I just scrolling through it and I see all these other guys posting their own brilliant thoughts underneath their names. And you know what I do? My temptation is to judge them. Look at those charlatans peddling the word of God. Like who do they think they are? How can they do that with a clear conscience? These arrogant, self-promoting guys. Here's the deal. One, I'm projecting my own sin, right, my own heart issues onto them. And two, what God may, convicting, may be convicting me of, that sin for me, may not be sin for them at all. They may have perfect freedom in the spirit of God to walk in that very same thing that I can't. Why? Maybe because it's become an idol for me. So with all these things, all these matters of conscience, we need to see that sometimes God's Holy Spirit will restrict us from doing things that aren't inherently evil, but that for us are sin. Because they have some kind of pull or tug on our identity. They're an idol for us in in some way. God works with us on a case-by-case basis in each of these things. Instagram, man, Instagram's a whole different beast. It's a whole different thing. Some Christians apparently feel very comfortable just snapping selfies all day long, right? They can just, they can just do that all the time. Like, it's no big deal. They wake up in the morning, right, and they, and they have bed head. They're like, whoa, everyone needs to see my bed This is incredible. And then they put on an outfit, and they think, okay, everybody needs to see what I look like. And then they're driving, you know, to, to work or to school or whatever, and, and they think to themselves, they, they must, they think, Okay, everybody needs to see what I see, specifically when I look in my rearview mirror and look at myself. They just, it needs to be seen. While other Christians, they just don't know how someone can be so, so, so self-obsessed and not see a problem with that. For them, it's very confusing. They have no grid for it. I mean, girls making the, the duck face thing and that I can't do. It looks horrible when I do it. And, and guys kind of giving the aerial shot of the hockey game in the restaurant and all that. Like, there's some people who that's totally okay and others who just have no grid for that. They see that as, a, as an issue. It's a problem. I think what we have, even with selfies, is a matter of conscience. And yet I think we can all agree the world would be a better place without them. I think we're all on that same page. Good, I'm glad. One last one, okay, one last practical issue, one last matter of conscience. This is a big one. It's a big one. And it's a big one for us uh, even right here at Westside. What about something like alcohol? What about the guy who's grown up in a home ravaged by alcoholism? I mean, his dad came home hammered most nights and took it out on the kids and on his wife. What about the girl right, who, who grew up with a mom, distant, disengaged, uninterested in her? Because, I mean, she just passionately pursued the escape that she found at the bottom of every bottle she could get her hands on. 
What about the guy or girl who, who's lived through years of a self-inflicted bender? What happens when those men and women come to Jesus? God gets hold of them. He saves them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. He gives them new desires for a new life. He binds their wounds. He gives them strength. What happens when people like that come to faith in Jesus and desperately want to leave every scent, every hint of that depravity and brokenness behind them? What happens when they walk into Westside? What happens when they start plugging in here? When they start becoming a part of this family, this community? Let me ask you, will they feel welcomed? Because here's what I know about the majority of us. If there's one thing we've got a good handle on, it's our first point. It's the gift of freedom that we have in Jesus. We know that nothing is inherently sinful if the Bible doesn't tell us so. And we're really into verses like Titus 1.15, which says, To the pure, all things are pure. We can quote that one really, really well. We have the right to walk in freedom and we know it. So what happens to our brothers and sisters who walk in less freedom than we do? Who are spiritually a bit weaker because of what they've been through. They're a bit more like, like a bruised reed. Do they walk in here and find protection and safety or do they walk in here and get snapped? Let me just push lightly on this, lightly, with a couple questions. Next week, we're going to deal more with uh, how we take steps to walk with our brothers and sisters um, through these things. That's next week. But let me ask you, are you willing, as a Christian, so I'm speaking to the Christians in the room, are you willing to forego some of the things you have a God-given right to because you're more concerned about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ who are less strong in their faith than you are? who walk in less freedom than you do. Let me ask, do you think about your brothers and sisters who struggle with these things before you advertise the beers you're drinking on Instagram? Does that weigh in to your decision whether or not to post something? Do you think about it? Do you think about them now, am I saying it's, it's always wrong to snap a, a picture of your drink? No, of course not. I'm not saying that's wrong or inherently sinful, but what I want us to see, what I want us to feel this morning is that true maturity is not experiencing freedom to do things other people can't do. True maturity, what it means to be truly mature is at times being free to forego things that you have the right to because you love your brothers and sisters in Christ more. So we've seen that all these things, right, all these things, every secondary matter of conscience, all these things are things that we're gifted freedom in through Jesus. It's good news. We can follow our hearts. And yet we've all seen that in each of these things, the problem of freedom becomes really clear. Right? The problem of freedom, which leads to our second point. See, the problem with freedom is that, is that we love it so much. And because we love it so much, we can start to think that it's the ultimate purpose in life. My freedom, my autonomy, even if it is in Jesus. I mean, wars have been fought, right? Countless lives given all over the globe so that generations after them could experience freedom. Right, freedom's a really big deal to us. So when we start walking in the freedom we have in Jesus, it feels so right that we have a hard time imagining a circumstance where we might actually limit it. It's hard to imagine that. We're far more likely to say, okay, Matt, you know what? If they don't like what I'm posting on Instagram, they don't have to follow me. Sounds right. right? Or how about if they don't like the way that I talk, then they don't have to hang out with me or listen to me. You know, or they don't like the way that I dress. If the way that I dress causes people to stumble in their purity, makes their purity hard for them to maintain, that's their problem. Why should I be penalized for their sin? We're far more likely to say that. If the way I talk offends you, if the way I dress offends you, if the way I spend my money offends you or confuses you, that's your problem. See, freedom is a high ideal for us. We like to fight for our freedom, fight for our autonomy. 
and here, here's what I know about a young church like us. Okay, I, I love this church. I recognize not everyone here is young. Thank God for that. We've been, we pray. You're an answer to prayer if you're here and you're, you're older. Thank you for being here. We need much, much more of that. But, but a young church like us, here's a, here's a problem that, that we face. Something very, very easy for us to do. Because we're so convinced of the freedom we have in Jesus, because we know it so well, it's very easy for us to wave our freedom in the faces of other people who don't experience the kind of freedom we do. And we feel very justified in that. I want you to see that all that is is a lack of maturity. It's a lack of wisdom and it's a lack of love on our part. And we need to grow up. We need to grow up from that. We need to leave those youthful ways behind us and become men and women of God who demonstrate discernment and wisdom and love for those who are weaker in faith than we are. Now, does, does this mean that God's word is telling us, okay, so what we have to do essentially is we have to tiptoe around everybody else, around all the other Christians, and whenever somebody doesn't like what we're doing, we have to change it. Is that what we're saying? No, no. But what we are saying, what we are saying is that we need to know our brothers and sisters around us well enough to know where these things are just preferences of theirs, which we may or may not have to pay attention to, and where these things are matters of conscience, where they're weaker in faith. We have to know where it's just preference and where we're actually harming them. Again, we're going to get into more specifics on that next week. So, so far we've seen the gift of freedom, right? We, the, and the problem of freedom, and all of this boils down to our third point. Our third point, where I want to finish and what I really want to see this morning is a purpose greater than our freedom. A purpose much, much greater than our own freedom. I mean, in order for us to know where these lines are with people, we need to understand the role that our freedom is meant to play. See, again, our culture tells us that freedom is the ultimate ideal. It's ultimate. Our city constantly preaches this sermon to us. Right? We're told that what you need to be happy and fulfilled is freedom from the rat race. Right? It's freedom from your job, freedom from your boss that you really can't stand, freedom from a limited bank account. You need to be free to do what you want, when you want. That's how you're going to find life. That's what, our, that's what our culture tells us. And we're so used to being told that freedom is the whole point that we start to believe it. We start to actually live this way. And that's where the problem we've seen stems from. And the correction is found in our text. So I want, I want us to see the correction this morning. So please grab your Bible. Turn to Romans 14. Uh, let me read verses 7 to 9 for us. Where we see the first part of the correction. See, Paul writes this. He says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. One thing I want want us to see here. I want us to see the king on the cross. The king on the cross. See, in these verses, we're given the purpose behind the life death and resurrection of Jesus. We're told here why he hung on the tree that day. We're told why God himself chose freely to limit his own freedom. I mean, if we want an example of somebody who has all the freedom in in the universe, in the cosmos, and chose to limit it for a greater purpose, Jesus. Jesus did that. Jesus walked this out for us. We're told the purpose behind the culmination of the gospel in Jesus was so that we would live to the Lord, die to the Lord, and belong to the Lord. Why? For the glory of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 says, You are not your own. Why not? Because you were bought with a price. Listen, you were not given the gift of freedom so that you could be free. You were given the gift of freedom so that you could be God's. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If you're in Jesus, then you're eating, sleeping, living, dying, working out, 
whatever life, it all belongs to him. It's all his. Every photo you post on Instagram is Jesus. Everything we do, it belongs to him our whole entire lives. And one of the texts I love on this point is 1 Peter 2.16, which commands us, it commands us to take advantage of our freedom in Jesus by commanding us, this says, live as people who are free. How? Living as servants of God. Peter says, take full advantage of your freedom by making yourself a slave to the one who created you to find life in himself. Now that sounds contradictory, right? I mean, what do you mean? Take advantage of our freedom by making myself a slave. It doesn't make any sense. And I, I realize that this sounds odd to our natural minds, but this misunderstanding of human freedom is nothing new. It's nothing new. It's as old as people. In fact, go all the way back to the beginning. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, Adam and Eve were given a huge amount of freedom total freedom, right? All the freedom in the world, a crazy amount of freedom. The problem was, the problem was they chose to use it instead of limit it. Were they free? Were they free to do what God had commanded them not to do? Yeah, they were free, absolutely free to do that. And you and I have been paying the price of their exercised freedom ever since. The gift of freedom that we're given through Jesus is like any other of God's gifts. It's not meant to make much of us. It's not meant to make much of you. It's meant to be used to build up the body. It's meant for everybody else, not to be spent on us. You weren't given freedom so that you could follow your own heart wherever it wants to take you. You were given freedom so that you, when you limit it, when you would limit it for your brothers and sisters in love, the world, the watching world would take notice of a free people who freely love and freely give and freely limit themselves because they're free to stop pursuing their own glory and pursue God's instead. That's what the gift of freedom is, is meant to accomplish, is meant to do. You belong to the Lord and so does everybody else around you. Every knee will break, bend before him. That means that when you exercise your freedom in a way that causes someone else to stumble, you're harming a person that Jesus died to buy. And he made it really clear for us. He made it really, really clear for us that whatever we do to the least of these, we do directly to him. I, I just think that we need to hear this and we need to let that weigh into our decisions. We just need to think about these things. That's the king on the cross. The second final reason why we see there's a greater purpose than our freedom is in our last verses. Please have a look at Romans 14, uh, 10 to 12. Let me read them for us. Paul writes this. He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What we need to see here is that the king not only went to the cross, but the king is also coming again as judge. You live to God you died to God, you belong to God, and please hear this, you will stand before God. See, we as people, we like to do a lot of comparing. There are people here this morning who are absolutely crippled by comparison. It's crippling for them. They're constantly comparing themselves to others. They either don't match up or they do match up and everyone's worse than them or they're worse than everybody else. It's this game that we play. And it's really destructive. We like to pretend that we're the judge and that everyone needs to meet our standards, but the reality is that Jesus is the only one who owns a scale that works. He's the only one with a scale. None of our comparisons matter. They don't matter at all. Jesus is the only one we will stand before when the books are open and when we give an account of everything that we've done. It's Jesus. 
And this is really important for those who practice both license and those who practice legalism. There's freedom in this for those who feel condemned this morning. For those who feel like they don't measure up. And there's a rebuke in this for those who feel self-righteous. First, for, for those who feel very free, for those of us here who feel very free in what we can or can't do, what we have to do, what we don't have to do, just the encouragement that I would give you today that I think we're hearing from God's word, the, the encouragement would be to assess yourself, assess yourself before God's word and ask him to root out anything in you that displeases him. I mean, this is the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 23, where he writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He recognizes he is not the best judge of himself. It's possible that he's walking in freedom, but that those things actually grieve God's spirit. So he's willing, because he recognizes that, to go and ask God to search him, to try him, to know him, and to reveal to him where he needs to change. That's one part of the encouragement. The other is I would just ask you to consider those around you. Consider those around you who maybe they're from a different generation, a generation or two before you. Instead of waving your freedom in their face, maybe they're right here in this room. And instead of doing that, how about love them? How about foregoing some of the things you have a right to, limiting the expression of those things so that you can love them and help them since they're a little bit weaker than you are? See, the fact that God's word calls these people weaker, um, weaker in faith, isn't meant to puff, puff us up. It's meant to show us that we're actually going to need to stoop a lot lower than we thought in order to serve those brothers and sisters. It's actually going to be a little bit more work than we first imagined. Now, for those on the other side of the spectrum, the legalistic side of the spectrum, you too need to remember that every man, woman, and child will stand before Jesus as judge. Tupac was right. <laughs> Tupac had it, bang on. Only God can judge me, right? He's right. Only God can judge me. I was toying with, keep going with that, and I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> I was going to wrap it for you. A bad idea. The fact that every man, woman, and child is going to stand before Jesus as a judge, that, what that means is that you need to let go of judging other people. It's not your job. It's not your job. You're not the legalism police. You're not the righteousness police. You haven't been given that badge. You're not the deputy. Jesus is the judge. So for you, when you see someone doing something that grieves your heart, for you it would be sin and you don't know how it cannot be sin for them, instead of judging them, how about loving them? How about lifting them to our Lord and Savior in prayer and asking him for the same things the psalmist was asking for? Ask, ask him to, to lead them in the way everlasting. To, if there's anything grievous in what they're doing to, to God's spirit, ask him to show them that. I mean, you can love them well in this. And the question for you this morning is can you, can you live faithfully to what you've been called to without comparing, without complaining, without being bitter, without becoming proud or puffed up? Can you be faithful to God's call on your life and love the people around you instead of judging them in these secondary issues? You live only to God, only to God. Do you believe that? And for all of us, for all of us, Jesus died so he could have all of us, our entire lives. Nothing we do is outside of his reign. Everything we do, everything we think and, and act on, it's all inside of his reign. It's all his. He's our Lord. He's our King. He's our judge. When we believe this, we will be a people who walk humbly, humbly with our God, a people who are able to lay down the gift of freedom that he's given us at his feet to forego things we otherwise would have a right to 
because we recognize that our brothers and sisters are worth more than that. And the purpose, the great purpose of glorifying God through our freedom is way more important than our own self-autonomy. Jesus is more valuable to us than all the freedom in the world. Let me pray. Father, Lord God, Savior, Lord, King, thank you. Thank you, God, for the freedom that you've given us. The incredible freedom, the new life, God, that those here in Jesus are new creations. Thank you. Lord, I ask today that you will just soften our hearts that you will help us to consider the ways that we live and some of the things that we are in the habit of doing in light of the gospel. Lord, that if we're doing things that, if we're doing things that just exacerbate the problem of comparison in people around us, if we try to make ourselves constantly look better than others, God, I pray that you would convict us of that sin and help us to instead love our brothers and sisters well. Lord, for those here who are burdened and feeling condemned and feeling laid low by the fact that they don't measure up to others, I ask, Lord, that you would remove from them the fear of man. I ask, God, that people would become bigger or smaller in their mind, in their heart, and you, God, you and your grace and your freedom and your love for them would become much, much bigger. God, I ask that we, this young church called Westside, I ask, Lord, that we would be known as a place full of wisdom, full of discernment, full of freedom, but even more than that, full of love for our brothers and sisters. That we would walk well and sensitively and maturely with those around us. Lord, we need you in this. We thank you for this. And I also want to pray for those here who don't yet know you. Would you draw them to yourself? Would you give them the same freedom that we have? We love you, Lord. Thank you. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.